0: You're driving down the road on a dark October night, just a few miles southwest of Chicago. The chill of autumn is in the air, the silhouettes of trees rock gently in the wind, and fragrant terpenes from their foliage suggest a coming rain. You're headed northeast on Archer Avenue, when suddenly your headlights light up a young woman in a white dress, so white it seems to glow, on the road right in front of you. You slam your foot down on the brake and swerve to miss her, but you know there was no time. Adrenaline pumping, you leap from the car, the cold snap of fall biting at your skin as you frantically look for the young woman, to help her, but as you make your way around the car once, twice, three times, calling for her, where are you? There's no one to be found. You look incredulously around you, and your eyes land on a pair of vast wrought iron gates. Silent sentinels for the ornate headstones within the legendary Resurrection Cemetery. And you realize, you just had an encounter with Chicago's most famous ghost. You just met Resurrection Mary. Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Welcome back to You Solved a Mystery. What's my thing? A podcast where everything's made up and the points don't matter? (laughs) (laughs) A podcast where we delve into segments of unsolved mysteries that have been solved and reveal the final chapter. But not today. No, today we have some spooky season specials, and I am so excited about the story I have today. It's a classic ghost story, and watching the segment gave me the same kind of chills as like telling scary stories around the campfire, so I am so excited to tell it to you. This segment originally aired February 9th, 1994, and can be found on YouTube as Season 6, Episode 15, and I do highly recommend watching it because it'll give you good spooky season feels. But real quick before we get into it, there are a couple recent developments to some Unsolved Mysteries cases that are kind of unbelievable. So the first one, if you're into true crime at all, you've heard about. It's been all over the place, and it's the 1982 murder of Bobby Oberholzer and Annette Schnee. It was featured in a 1991 episode. Bobby was 29 years old when one night she didn't come home. A neighbor called her husband, Jeff, the next morning to say he'd found Bobby's driver's license in the snow, so Jeff left to pick it up, and on the way he found something concerning. Bobby's backpack. Next to a blood-spattered glove. Two hours later, searchers found Bobby's body. Although she was wearing both of her own shoes and socks, an additional orange boot sock was found at the scene. Six months later, police found the body of Annette Schnee. The 21-year-old waitress had been reported missing on January 6th, the same day that Bobby disappeared, and on one foot was the matching orange boot sock. The case was cold for 39 years. Damn. Damn. But earlier this year, genetic genealogy matched the blood on the glove Oh snap! to a 70-year-old man named Alan Phillips. Phillips has been arrested and charged with murder, kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon, and they're looking into whether he's linked to other Colorado cold cases. The other update is on Caitlin Arquette. Caitlin's story was featured in a 1993 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. She was just 18 in 1989 and had just graduated high school when one day a car pulled up beside hers and someone inside shot her twice in the head. For decades, the family thought that her boyfriend was involved with her murder. But in August of this year, a 53 year old man named Paul Apodaca was picked up for a parole violation. And while in custody, he told correction staff he had information on some old murders. When detectives arrived to speak to him, he confessed not only to Caitlin's murder, but to two others. In 1988, he stabbed a 21-year-old university student named Althea Oakley to death, and sometime between Althea and Caitlin, he murdered a third woman, though those details have not been made public. The reason he gave for these random, brutal, heinous killings was that he had a deep hatred of women. Oh, why don't you try something original, dude? <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Paul. Although he hasn't been charged for Caitlin's death yet, he was charged for Althea's on August 19th, 2021, which would have been her 55th birthday. Poetic timing. Mm-hmm. Is it the kind of thing where they need to find more evidence than just confession? Yeah, I think they're just gathering more information and, like, dotting the T's and all that before they make the charge. So that's five murders that are potentially solved, and 30 to 40 years after the crimes were committed. And that's just in the past few months that it all came out, so it's wild. One of them, the guy just decided to confess, but the other one, that genealogy stuff, people are paranoid about giving their information to private organizations, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty cool. And some people find siblings. (laughs) It's not all murders. Sometimes just find out you've got a couple sisters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are saying that we can expect more and more of these kinds of cold cases to be solved with genetic genealogy. But yeah, so I had to mention those cases. Breaking news! Beep, 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 beep! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But now, let's get back to Resurrection Mary. The first known encounter with a mysterious and elusive spirit was in 1939. Jerry Pallas was at Liberty Grove and Hall Ballroom when he noticed a beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed young woman enter. She was wearing a fashionable white dress and dancing shoes, and her shoulder-length blonde hair was worn with curls framing her face. He was enchanted. He asked her to dance, and as they did, he tried to learn more about her, but found she was quiet and vague. All he learned was that her name was Mary and she lived on 47th and Damon, on the south side of Chicago. Her hands were like ice, but they danced the night away and even kissed. He offered her a ride home, which she accepted. She told him to take her to Archer Road, which puzzled him, since she said she lived on the south side, but she insisted. As they neared Resurrection Cemetery, she told him to stop the car. She opened the door and looked at him. She said, I must leave you now. You can't follow me. And as she turned and walked towards the entry gates, she disappeared right before his eyes. I've heard this story. Perplexed and confused, the next day Jerry went to Damon Avenue, where Mary said she lived. A woman answered the door, and when he inquired about Mary, she said no one by that name lived there. But Jerry glanced inside and saw a photograph. It was his dance partner from the previous evening. He pointed at the photograph and said, That's her. I danced with her all last night. But the woman shook her head and said, No. No, that's not possible. That's my daughter. She died five years ago. And that's when he realized why Mary had been so cold to the touch. See, Jerry had worked part-time in a funeral home. And in that moment, he realized the chill of her hand was the touch of a corpse. Come on in, take off your skin and rattle around in your (laughs) bones. Come on in, take Take off off your skin skin and rattle around around in your bones. bones. (laughs) (laughs) But how did he find her house? Did he just, like, knock on doors? No, she literally told him she lived on 47th and Damon. Like, right on the corner. And that might seem strange, but I read some newspaper clippings from the 20s and 30s for this story, and they actually listed each victim's exact address after their name. Huh. So in 1939, it wasn't that wild. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to meet someone and be like, Hello, individual I just met. Here's my exact address, and how are you? <laughs> Fewer people, more trusting. Yeah. And this was in the newspaper? No. Well, Yes. Yes, it was in the newspapers eventually. But it was later. Yeah, it was later in the 1970s. But it also made me think of, um, did you ever see that meme where it's like, every girl should have a guy friend whose number she can give out to creeps so that when they call, he'll answer and be like, that's impossible. She died five years ago that night. (laughs) Is that (laughs) what her mom was doing? (laughs) (laughs) She's hiding and she's like I don't like him. Tell him I died. <laughs> she's hiding behind the door. He wasn't a good leader <laughs> I Love that. That would be a better story. I mean, I'm sure this is a compelling story, but like a not dead story. Oh yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so the legend of Resurrection Mary falls into the fo- folklore 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 <laughs> falls into the folklore categories of both the woman in white and the vanishing hitchhiker both are classic everyone has heard some version of the story like you said i've heard this story before there's even one in more score Mm-mm. <laughs> It begins. (laughs) (laughs) More scary stories to tell in the dark by Alvin Schwartz. Classic. But of all ghosts, Chicago's historian-turned-ghost hunter Richard Crowe believed that Resurrection Mary was one of the strongest cases for a ghost being real. He told Unsolved Mysteries, I think that of all the ghost stories worth believing in, Resurrection Mary is the one with the best documentation. The witnesses that I've found are remarkably level-headed and they're primarily blue-collar middle-class types who have steady jobs and who have no other major claims to psychic encounters in their lives." End quote. He reportedly collected 3 dozen substantiated sightings of the aloof and alluring ghost during his career as quote, "the only full-time professional ghost hunter in the Midwest," as he called himself. Although he didn't start out as a ghost hunter, Crow had an interest in the supernatural from a young age. He went to a Catholic school where Reverend John Nicola, who was an advisor for the Exorcist, taught Latin and would regale his students with tales of possession. Okay, I kind of thought all that stuff was like really secretive? Like confidential? Fairly <laughs> not. Crow told the Chicago Tribune that traditional Catholicism is steeped in the supernatural. So, ironically, it was his Catholic upbringing that got him interested in ghosts and folklore and things that might be considered kind of occultish. In college, Crow majored in English literature with a focus on supernatural literature. And why did we not do that, Chandra? I personally didn't know it was a thing. <laughs> We've made mistakes. <laughs> Uh, I would say that my whole first degree was a mistake, but... (laughs) I mean, you have grammar. (laughs) (laughs) I have grammar. You have grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Crow's fascination with the supernatural came from a lens through which ghost stories are a different way of examining history because history is alive within the stories, and ghosts are history that still exist. So he collected unusual folk tales and ghost stories and in 1973 started the very first Chicago ghost tour. Hmm. And in 1979, he became a full-time ghost hunter. But I don't think that the modern notion of a ghost hunter would be accurate. I think that I would describe him more as a ghost academic. In addition to ghosts, he researched jinxes, curses, bad luck, leprechauns. He had a huge library of books on the subjects, what I wouldn't give to be in that library, and he would give lectures on a host of supernatural topics. I found that he collected vintage postcards related to shipping disasters like the Titanic, Lusitania, and a Chicago recreation ship called the Eastland that sank in 1915 in the Chicago River, killing 800 people. Wow. And all that just made me think that he's. A spooky little bish after our own hearts. <laughs> Crow was known to be a terrific storyteller, delving deep into his expert knowledge of the lore on his walking, bus, and boat tours. A boat tour? A boat ghost tour? Yeah, he had a two-hour boat tour on Lake Michigan where he would point out places where there were shipping disasters, and where there might be aquatic ghosts. Oh, okay. I would so go on that. I would too. On these tours, he wanted to convey the mysticism and mystery of the legends, not necessarily scare. But he did have his own supernatural experiences, On Halloween night, 1995, he was leading a tour through Jackson Park when they saw an older man in a topcoat in homburg, which is an old-fashioned hat similar to a fedora, walking along the lagoon. Two tour members ran after him, calling for him to stop, I guess because he was in old-fashioned clothing, but he didn't seem to hear them. They chased him because he was in old-fashioned clothing. I guess so. And it was, like, on Halloween, and they were like, what's this old guy in old-fashioned clothes? If I was an old guy in old-fashioned clothes, I'd be like, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah. But the thing is, like, okay, maybe he's just old and doesn't have that grade of hearing anymore, but he didn't seem to hear them at all. Well, maybe he's deaf? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You're not wrong. I had questions, too. (laughs) but <laughs> but when they were within a few feet of him the two chasers froze in inexplicable fear they were unable to follow him any further crow believed that they had just witnessed the ghost of clarence darrow the famed defense attorney for the leopold and loeb murder case whose ashes had been spread in that part and let me tell you Leopold and Loeb and Clarence Darrow were like a two or three hour rabbit hole (laughs) that I went down because it's just bananas. (laughs) Clarence Darrow's whole career was pretty interesting. I can't believe we would bring this up and not go into it. We should just Make this into a two-parter that turns into a three-parter. <laughs> no! <laughs> you should be so proud of me that I edited it out! <laughs> <laughs> but I will just tell you about Leopold and Loeb. Um, it was a case where two wealthy college students in 1924 decided to murder a 14-year-old boy because they were overconfident, narcissistic assholes who thought they could do the perfect murder. And Clarence Darrow argued their case because he was staunchly against capital punishment, so his whole goal was to get them life in prison rather than being executed. Huh. Yeah, so Clarence Darrow, really interesting, really suffered from white man syndrome. (laughs) He had all these... Awesome ideals, but then he tossed them out the window when it came to needing a Lego for himself, so you know. You know how it goes. Hmm. But returning to the topic at hand. (laughs) Resurrection Mary is considered Richard Crowe's signature ghost, and it's thanks to him that she became the legend that she is today, and that so many purported encounters with her have been recorded and still exist. According to legend, Resurrection Mary's story begins in 1934 when a young woman named Mary went out to O. Henry's dance hall with friends. After dancing late into the night, she had a fight with her boyfriend and left on her own. As she walked the dark road towards her home, she was struck by a hit-and-run driver who left her to die. Her parents, concerned when she didn't return home, set out to search for her And it was them who found her lifeless body on Archer Road. It's said that they buried her in her favorite white dress and dancing shoes. She was laid to rest in Resurrection Cemetery, near where her body had been found and from where she received her ghostly moniker. Ever since then, people, primarily men, driving along Archer Ave between the now shuttered Willowbrook Ballroom, formerly O. Henry's, And a resurrection cemetery have reported seeing her, often stopping to offer her a ride. Mary is usually described as a young woman, nineteen to early twenties, with light blonde hair and blue eyes, wearing a white dress and somewhat formal attire, and quiet. As the drivers near the cemetery with their spectral passenger, she asks them to stop and let her out, whereupon she disappears. And the story, like most legends, has some clout. In 1934, 21-year-old Mary Bregavy was killed in a car accident when the driver struck an imperceptible substructure that had pushed up through the road. An imperceptible substructure? Yeah. That's just a wild circumstance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nobody would ever expect an imperceptible substructure. <laughs> it's the early days of driving, man. It's wild times. All kinds of jutting substructures and unmarked ravines. (laughs) In Chicago, people like to say that Mary had just left a dance hall when she was killed in her car accident. Mary was buried in Resurrection Cemetery in an orchid-colored dress. Although the exact location of her grave has been lost, it's thought that she occupies the unmarked grave next to her parents. There are a lot of different colored orchids. Yeah. Do they mean like the white orchids that you can find at the grocery store? Is that what they're talking about? It, it isn't specified. Did she have blonde hair? Probably not. I'll get there. Okay. Yeah, it's true. It could have been pink. It could have been purple. Or it could have been white. You decide. <laughs> According to a 1992 article in the Chicago Tribune, the staff of Resurrection Cemetery agreed that Mary Bregevy was probably the inspiration for the legend. But they did not believe in the ghost stories. Really, they had no time for your spooky bullshit. (laughs) Chet Kolkowski, who maintained the mausoleum, told the Tribune, It's all a myth. I have worked here for 25 years. I used to patrol the grounds at Halloween, and during the blizzard of 79, I slept in the mausoleum because I couldn't make it home. Believe me, at night, nothing here moves. End quote. Further casting doubt on the theory, the legend says that Mary was en route to or leaving O. Henry Ballroom, which was in Willowbrook Springs, neighboring Justice, where the cemetery is, but Mary Bregevy's car accident was at the downtown Chicago Loop and there was no access to any dance halls via their route. She also was not struck by a hit-and-run driver. She passed away en route to the hospital after the accident. I don't know. If there were ghosts, I think the place that they encountered the trauma that killed them could be a significant location. Haunting an ambulance is just going to be a bummer. Yeah, but she was killed... In downtown Chicago, and Resurrection Cemetery is in Justice, which is just outside of Chicago. Oh, uh, right, and her body was moved? Yes. And finally, going against this theory, from the few surviving black and white photos of Mary Bregovie, she appears to have short, dark colored hair, not blonde. But every legend comes from a smidgen of truth. So let's dream wildly. In the 1920s and 30s, the graves at Resurrection Cemetery were sold on 25 year terms. That's not a lot of time at all. Yeah. And so, if no family repurchased the site after the term, the occupant would be moved. That's dirty. In the 1960s or 70s, Mary's term came up, and the section in which she was buried was renovated. The knowledge of the location of her body was lost. Or, perhaps, Deliberately hidden by the staff to discourage tourists trudging in to catch a glimpse of Chicago's famous phantom. Secretly they know. <laughs> so Richard Crow believed that the abundance of sightings in the nineteen seventies stemmed from her gravesite being moved. He told the Chicago Tribune, and I love this, quote, Ghosts are the ultimate conservatives. Change bothers them immensely. End quote. <laughs> So because her grave was disturbed, she came back to wander the cemetery, searching for her body or home, as if in waking from her restless grave, she forgot that she had ever died. There is another somewhat more recent theory of Resurrection Mary's origin that I'll tell you about. Another Chicago folklorist and historian, Ursula Bielski, learned of Ona Norkis from a reader after her first book was published. Frank Andreasich had researched obsessively to uncover the true identity of Resurrection Mary. After asking around, hearing many versions of the story and opinions as to her origin, he landed on Lithuanian Ona Maria Norkis. Her name was anglicized to Anna, and it is said that Ona's devotion to the biblical Mary led her to use the name Maria M A R I J A Ursula also says Ona loved to dance and convinced her father to take her to the O Henry dance hall for her thirteenth birthday. According to Ursula, on july twentieth, nineteen twenty seven, Ona and her father danced the night away with two friends, but as they made their way home at approximately one hundred thirty AM, their car went careening into a twenty five foot ditch and overturned crushing poor Ona, and she died instantly. She was just a little baby. Yeah. Now, in the blog post that Ursula wrote on the theory, she got some information wrong, like stating that Jerry Pallas supposedly met Resurrection Mary in 1936, when he actually met her in 1939. There were also five other people in the car with her, including Ona's sister, Sophia. Sophia, their father, August, and the rest were also injured in the accident, and one, a 56-year-old friend of her father, actually passed away the next day from his injuries. So I have to take Ursula with a grain of salt, because these are not difficult facts to get straight. Ona was scheduled for burial at Casimir Cemetery, but Ursula posits that, if... The Casimir Cemetery gravediggers happened to be on strike at the time, which happened sometimes because of the difficult and laborious working conditions that gravediggers faced. Ona might have been temporarily interred at Resurrection Cemetery and then lost. Yeah. But that's such a stretch of, like, ifs and mites that I personally think it's kind of a weak theory. That's some wild speculation. Yeah. Like... Ona died in July, which is nowhere near her birthday of September 14th, and records have her buried at St. Casimir Cemetery in Chicago. Ursula's story fails to mention Sophia being in the car, as well as two additional friends, and Ona was only 12 years old and could hardly be mistaken for an alluring 19- to 20-something-year-old woman. I hope. Or else all of these stories just took a hard left into the wrong kind of creepy, if you know what I mean. Meow. Yeah. (laughs) So I prefer the Mary Bregovy theory. Like the resurrection staff said, I think there are enough similarities that she could have been the origin of the story, if not the actual ghost. But whoever resurrection Mary might have been in life, her departed form has frightened, bewildered, and amused Chicagoans for the last 90 years. In 1980, Claire and Mark Rudnicki were driving along a road near the infamous cemetery with some friends, when they saw a girl walking slowly on the side of the road, and she was bright, so bright, as if illuminated from the inside. And Claire immediately thought to herself, oh my god, it's Resurrection Mary. Despite her protests, Mark turned the car around to try and see her again, but when they passed the spot they'd seen her moments before, she was gone. They insist it couldn't have been a prank because she was so illuminated, and there was no light source that could have been doing it. The glow was emanating from the woman herself. And what's more, Mark said that as they drove by the first time, he craned his neck around to look at her face, and it was just... A black void. Although Claire refuses to return, Mark told Unsolved Mysteries he still drives by the cemetery sometimes to see if he can see her again, and that he never believed in ghosts until that day. In 1976, police were called to the cemetery on a report that someone had been locked inside. Someone driving by had seen a young woman in a white dress standing inside the gate with her hands on the bars. When they responded, the police found no one, but were startled to see that two bars in the massive gate had been bent, with handprints scorched into the metal as if they had been pulled apart by someone trying to force their way out. The story quickly spread that Resurrection Mary had burned her handprints into the menacing gates that were trapping her in her restless afterlife. Cemetery staff, however, told the Tribune that a grounds worker had accidentally backed a truck into the gate. They attempted to restore it by heating the bars and bending them back, and the handprints were from a worker's gloves. Mm. However, Chet Kowalkowski, who maintained the mausoleum and slept there during the snowstorm, uh-huh. he did admit to the Tribune that people are sometimes missed on the 475-acre property and locked in which <laughs> life goals am i right you just get a nice peaceful night in a cemetery sleeping <laughs> under the stars what's a girl gotta do to get locked in a haunted cemetery with some bug spray and a sleeping bag and some crackers <laughs> or the keys to the mausoleum or that no i'd still want a sleeping bag gotta be cozy in the cemetery gotta be cozy in a haunted cemetery <laughs> <laughs> One of the most famous encounters with Mary happened in 1979. Tribune columnist Bill Geist wrote of the experience of a cab driver who asked to be identified only as Ralph. Ralph was a typical 52-year-old working guy, a veteran father, Little League coach, and churchgoer. But on a cold midnight in January, Ralph found himself lost trying to make his way back to the tollway after dropping off a fare in Palos Heights. When he turned onto Archer, a dark and lonely back road, suddenly before him stood a young woman with blonde hair, a pale dress, and no coat. It was the lack of coat that caught his attention, since it was a freezing January night with snow on the ground, so he stopped to see if she was all right. She didn't say anything, but he offered her a ride and she accepted. He noticed her white dress was fancy, as if she'd been to a wedding, and she was very pretty with her blonde hair. He asked her where she was going, and she simply said she had to get home, gesturing up Archer Road. He tried again to ask what was wrong, but all she said was, The snow came early this year. She sat looking out the window at the trees and the snow, and he thought she seemed a little bit fuzzy, like maybe she'd had a couple of drinks. Suddenly, a couple miles up Archer Road, she jumped up and said, Here, here! Ralph hit the brakes and looked around, but he didn't see a house of any kind. Where? he asked. There. She pointed across the road, and he turned to see a little shack nestled in the snow. And that's when it happened. He turned back to ask if she was sure this was where she wanted to go. And she was gone. No door had opened. No girl in white ran across the road. She had vanished into thin air. Another sighting, that's kind of fun, came from Bob Maine, the night manager of a dance club called Harlow's in 1973. It was the Glitter Rock era, so he was used to odd-looking people of unusual outfits, but one Friday, a woman came in who stood out from the crowd. She had pale skin, as if she'd powdered her face and body. Her light blonde hair was up in an old-fashioned style, and she was wearing a dress that was yellow but not a vibrant yellow like the sun, or even a pastel cream, but a yellow like an old wedding dress that's been stored in a hot attic. She arrived alone and spoke to no one, spending the evening dancing alone. She returned the next Saturday, and when Bob or others tried to speak to her, she would just shake her head and seem to look right through them. The strangest thing to Bob was... Despite having a door person stationed at the entrance, carting everyone, no one saw her come in or out. One final story. Chet and Clara Prusinki owned a bar and restaurant called Chet's Melody Lounge across from the cemetery. After opening in the early 60s, they came in contact with many alarmed and confused motorists with strange stories of a disappearing girl. They once helped a taxi driver who thought he'd been grifted search for a blonde woman who disappeared from his cab. Chet also claimed that a police officer once called an ambulance for a bloodied woman wearing a white dress he believed he'd hit and knocked into the cemetery gate. When the ambulance arrived, she was gone. In 1996, a young man rushed into Melody Lounge, shouting that he'd hit a young woman with his car and needed help. Within minutes... Another man came running in frantically, declaring the same story. Both men searched anxiously for the young woman wearing a white dress, but there was no evidence of a body or any young woman at all. Chet's Melody Lounge was a hit for both cemetery workers and ghost hunters, and it's still open. So if we're ever in Chicago, I know where we're eating. <laughs> <laughs> When asked by the Tribune in 1992 if he believed in Mary, Chet laughed and said, quote, I don't know, I've never seen the wind, but I know that's there, end quote. He lamented the number of people who would have run amok in the cemetery in the 70s and wished they'd just leave her alone. And every night, as the crowd would begin to thin and the staff prepared to close, Chet and Clara would place a Bloody Mary at the end of the bar. Just in case she was thirsty, sometimes it would even disappear. It was me <laughs> as Chet said, quote, "Hey, it's free! Somebody probably drinks it <laughs> End quote. by the nineties, sightings of Resurrection Mary were rare, although Richard Crow did know of at least one sighting in two thousand but I couldn't find the details of that or any more recent sightings. Ghost enthusiasts aren't sure what to make of it, but perhaps after decades of wandering, it was nearly time for Mary to return to her grave, having earned her eternal rest. But to doubters, Richard Crow said, quote, Just because something is an archetype doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Once in a while. End quote. Crow passed away in 2012 at the age of 64. He was laid to rest at Resurrection Cemetery. Perfect. Right? I got chills when I read that. Even now I have chills, because it's like he became his own ghostly legend. I wonder if he hangs out with Mary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if he finally knows the full story. <laughs> That's the tale of Resurrection Mary. Thank you for joining us again after our rather lengthy absence. We hope you enjoyed the first of our two spooky season specials that we're bringing you this month. You can follow us on Instagram at YouSolvedAMystery. You can contact us at you solved a mystery at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy spooky season. Pull out all your sweaters. Happy pumpkins. <laughs> have some cider. By the way, I am and will likely continue to be Chandra. <laughs> I have always been and will most likely always be Athena. Join us next time for you solve a mystery.